Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, August 3rd, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to start off this week talking about one of the big policy planks of President Donald Trump's campaign, immigration. Uh, He and a couple of Republican senators rolled out a big piece of new immigration legislation this week aimed at reducing the amount of legal immigration, the number of green cards uh, issued per year into the United States. We're going to talk about what is in that bill, uh, how it kind of fits into the Trump administration's daily political strategy and also a little bit of what's going on inside the West Wing right now, which we've been talking about a lot. There's there's yet more uh, new stuff this week. We're also going to dive into a couple of Senate races. We're going to talk this week about Arizona, home of Senator Jeff Flake, who has, in the past week, has really amplified himself. He's always been a never-Trump voice within the Republican Party, one of the few remaining ones uh, among congressional Republicans. But he's got a book out. He's been making a lot of media appearances. And despite the fact that he's up for re-election in 2018, he's really leaning into this uh, at a time when uh, President Trump has taken control of the Republican Party. On the flip side, we're also going to be talking about the upcoming Alabama Senate special election, where uh, every Republican in the race wants to be standing with Trump as they get ready to face Alabama GOP primary voters on August 15th in that race to uh, complete the term once uh, filled by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. A couple things before we start that conversation. Remember, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have any questions and Please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. We really want your feedback. We want to keep improving the show, expanding the audience. So please, if you have time, write a review uh, of the show on Apple Podcasts or uh, another app. All right, here's our panel this week. Got a little bit of a different look. Nancy and Eliana couldn't make it, but we have making his Nerdcast debut, White House correspondent Josh Dossie. Welcome, Josh. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hey, Scott. Uh, fresh off his star turn at Politicon last last weekend. I'm, uh, it sounded like the show went really well. Yeah, it went really well. We had a uh, nice turnout, and uh, it was great to meet uh, some of our listeners afterwards. Uh, we, we had a blast. So unlike the newsroom, people listen to you? (laughs) (laughs) People are actually nice to us. (laughs) Unlike the newsroom. All right. Here is our first segment this week. The data point is this number, 500,000. And that is the targeted reduction in green cards that would be issued each year by the U.S. government under new legislation that President Donald Trump officially endorsed on Wednesday. Here's Trump unveiling the proposal alongside Senate co-authors Tom Cotton and David Perdue. The RAISE Act ends chain migration and replaces our low-skilled system with a new points-based system for receiving a green card. This competitive application process will favor applicants who can speak English, financially support themselves and their families, and demonstrate skills that will contribute to our economy. 
Okay, so Josh, Politico readers will not have been surprised by Wednesday's announcement if they read the story that uh, Eliana and you wrote, uh, what, last month about what was coming down the pike. But so let's talk about everything that's going on in here. This is a proposal about legal immigration, not illegal immigration, and what's inside it. Right. So this has been a brainchild of Stephen Miller, uh, long-time Jeff Sessions aide, is now, you know, top policy advisor and speechwriter to President Trump, who you know, has long decried too much illegal immigration, not illegal immigration, but legal immigration. And he had been working quietly on the Hill with uh, David Perdue of uh, Georgia and uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas to craft a plan that would cut this by half over over 10 years, a pretty drastic step by all accounts. Uh, and it's kind of a, one of the ways that President Trump is trying to fulfill his immigration agenda where, you know, you have a wall that's probably not happening anytime soon. You have... Uh, you know, the travel ban that has been blocked on multiple occasions. Uh, it's kind of his legislative front to begin, uh, you know, telling his base, OK, actually, we are going to do this. But, you know, I think at best, it has a very slim chance of passing in Congress. A lot of it is, you know, just talking about what we'd like to do. I don't I don't think this is going anywhere fast. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, four years ago, 68 senators voted for a very different type of immigration uh, reform bill, right? It was the the, the gang of, uh, what was it, eight? Uh, I think it was I eight. I track of the gang. <laughs> but, you know, from, <laughs> a pra- from a practical standpoint, it's hard to see how it gets passed just based on what we've seen from the White House uh, recently. It's a complex and controversial uh, measure, and there's really little evidence that the White House has the discipline or the dexterity to make this happen. Uh, and, and then you've got all the other issues in the background that are going to su- suck up all the oxygen. Whether you're talking about tax reform, debt ceiling, uh, and then comes the then then we're on the silly season of 2018. So I mean, it's really hard to see where this goes. What what specifically is in here? We talked about that top line number, the 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 50 percent cut uh, down to about to, or to below 500 thousand from about a million green cards that are issued every year. How how does this legislation go about doing that, Josh? What are the kind of specific ways in which it it, it would cut this down? Well, it's what they're trying to do, and as Charlie said, I think it's very unlikely that it happens. But it's kind of a merit-based immigration system where they, where the administration controls who comes in the country, people that they believe to be, you know, beneficial <laughs> to America. Now, that's a that's a tough thing to judge. Uh, what's beneficial to you? Maybe not what beneficial to me. But what the administration is trying to do is is cut the numbers down to where they control you know, the type of person who comes in the country based on on various criteria. And one thing that senior administration officials have told us is, you know, they want to keep people from coming in the country that are going to be on welfare or that the government's going to have to support. They want higher uh, earners. They want folks who, uh, you know, contribute to sectors they see as important. Uh, So it's controversial at least. And, you know, I think there could even be legal challenges crafted to it as well. Uh, What else is new? (laughs) But what else is new? We've been in legal fights for seven months now. Uh, So the other thing, though, I think we should point out is that, you know, President Trump and his team, they like fights. I mean, we saw the first weekend they came out with this travel ban. It was just, you know, aggressive. People weren't briefed, protests at the airports, court challenges. Uh, you know, the transgender military ban a couple weeks ago or last week, time is all a flat circle. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they like these cultural fights where even if they don't actually get something done or even if they don't implement it, it kind of shows us against them. You know, we're, this is what we're trying to do. This is why you elected us. 
And, you know, it's going to be chaotic. Well, that actually brings us to yesterday's White House briefing when they were rolling out this policy. Right, Charlie? I mean, there, there was a big blow up between Stephen Miller, the Trump aide, and uh, I think most notably Jim Acosta of CNN. The Statue of Liberty says give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses during the breathe free. It doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to uh, compu- uh, be a computer programmer. Even Jim, do you believe? Going to be highly skilled. They're not always Jim, going to be Jim, Jim, I, I appreciate your speech. Down, Jim, I appreciate your speech. So tell me what years meet Jim Acosta's definition of the Statue of Liberty poem, Law of the Land. Yeah, I mean, what, what I found interesting is in, in some ways it seemed like the most or maybe one of the more traditional policy rollouts of this administration. You know, it's, it was an endeavor that was not rooted in norm breaking. Uh, it Twitter. was not rolled out on Twitter. Uh, it, it did not have the same kind of seat of the pants. We're just winging it here. Feel that so many of the other uh, policy rollouts have. And the, the other thing I think that's really important to keep in mind here, uh, and I think the White House understands this, is that this is a, uh, a very polarizing, uh, volatile issue. And it always has been throughout American history. I mean, just decade by decade by decade, you will see this fight. And I think the idea that what that some of their proposals are far from the mainstream is mistaken. There will be a lot of support out there. Uh, my guess is particularly for the English language provisions, which really sparked the fight, the dust up in the, uh, you know, at the press conference yesterday. Uh, and I think that if this is something that is uh, going to accrue to their benefit in a way that maybe some of the other tra- traditional policy rollouts have. That pulls very well on, that, on both parties that we've already seen. And that is a broader thing the Trump administration has, has tried to reiterate over and over again. You saw yesterday in the briefing room, Stephen Miller said, look how this polls, look how this is being covered in local media. You know, the travel ban is the same way. You know, there was months of chaos, lots of protest, and then, you know, pretty high approval ratings, somewhere near 50 percent for the travel ban, even above. Uh one of their most, I think, interesting political tactics is they make Democrats and liberals defend things that are not necessarily that popular. Uh, you know, the, the, the travel ban, uh, arts funding, uh, you know, transgender uh, folks in the military. I mean, they, they make they put these cultural issues where there is actually kind of a broad support across the country for probably what their policy is, even if it's controversial. And, or and some dip- version of or it. Or some version not of it. Not necessarily exactly as they've phrased they it. They kind but. of put folks on their hills. And it's, it's an interesting strategy, I, I think, you know, even with their policing rhetoric. A lot of Americans want strong policing. They don't mind when the president says, you know, if he's a murder suspect, rough him up a little bit. Uh a lot of this is not politically correct, but outside of Washington and I think New York, uh, probably a lot of people who support a lot of it. I think it's a great point to make. They're very good at identifying these cultural wedge issues and it uh, identifying the issues that Americans talk about, maybe not in public. Uh, but here's the here's the problem. I think Democrats uh, have gotten a pass so far because of the uh, inability to execute in the White House, the, the gross incompetence, the, uh, the the distractions, the other controversies. But once the White House or if I, I should say if the White House is ever able to really operate uh, in a normal fashion and actually execute, then uh, it, this is going to be a, a very interesting election if they continue to identify these cultural wedge issues. Well, and you know, I was thinking about in, in context. Obviously, this the different sides of the issue, but we're we're talking about this as the you know first week. Uh, wrapping up the first week of the new White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, who was as the DHS secretary before this was responsible for executing Trump's immigration policy. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, the extent to to which he will be able to exercise control over the West Wing. And certainly we have seen 
not not that it stopped anyone from predicting this in the past, but it wouldn't be the first time people have predicted that that things were going to kind of smooth out a little bit for the Trump administration. But I, as Charlie noted before, this was this was a normal policy, normal boring policy rollout. Right. Here's what I'm hearing about John Kelly so far internally. Uh, you know, we've seen tweets already that are a little erratic. I don't think he's going to control the president. I don't think you're going to have a president who stops watching Fox and Friends or, you know, sometimes goes to the fringe. I do think what John Kelly's doing, uh, based on the folks I talk to in the White House, you know, making the staff feel a little bit more that things are under control, you know, putting some protocols in place where people don't just walk in the meetings in the middle and up up in them, where briefing materials have to go through agencies, they have to be vetted, where staff meetings have an agenda and some rhyme and reason. Uh, so what I'm kind of sensing so far is that uh, President Trump, uh, you know, I don't think is going to make any sort of drastic fundamental change. I think what John Kelly is trying to do is, you know, Put better information in front of the president. Get the staff to stop fighting as much. Get the staff to feel like there's kind of a common goal and a common aim. And just put together some basic business practices that would have happened in any other West Wing but have not happened so far in this one where, you know, there is, you know, an interagency process to do things. There is, you know, a, a decision meeting where where actual policy is discussed instead of whatever uh, personality conflicts are going on uh, so I, I think he's putting a little rhythm there. Now, whether he can make Trump uh, behave any better, uh, who knows? And I wonder if it's the last best chance for the administration to to really operate uh, like a normal functional uh, policy shop or or, or White House. Uh, I know it's only six months in, but the, look, the die is almost cast. He's a you know a seventy year old man who's not going to change his ways that 71 much. Seventy one now. So, is he seventy one? Seventy one. Oh, were you at the birthday party or something? <laughs> The line that I have written in so many stories, he's 70. He's not going to change. I had to update it, 71. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we know he's not going to change that much. So it'll be interesting to see, though, how much uh, discipline Kelly is going to be able to in- inject into that operation. Because after, after a while, you know, once they get used to the chaos and operating by the seat of the pants, they're just going to continue that way because, you know, obviously Trump himself is the wellspring of that. So uh, I'm very curious to see whether he's going to be able to especially stop the flow of bad information to the White House because information flow is so central to that job. I mean, I don't think we've ever really had a case before, at least none that got into the press, about the president getting such bad information. When I say bad information, I'm talking about things like fake news reports that he believes to be real or, you know, crazy Photoshop pictures, things like that. And even if he's able to just introduce a modicum of normalcy into that operation, you know, it could be curious to see what, what difference it makes. Well, and when you give the president bad information, uh, you know, he's supposing things and coming to decisions based on things that aren't true. And that's that's a little scary. Uh, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where the president's not watching Fox and Friends or he's not sometimes handed Breitbart articles or is not sometimes given a French conspiracy news website story. But this was happening a lot. I mean, there were examples. I mean, our friend Shane, who's now at The New York Times, did a whole – it was an amazing story written about – all the fake news that got on the president's desk, stories that had no basis in truth. I mean, z- zero truth to them. Well, and the opening anecdote of that story was Reince Priebus ordering the staff to knock it off and right. them paying no attention to him whatsoever. Right. It just, it was, it was, it's bizarro material. So what, is Kelly just a stronger personality? Is that, is that it? I mean, obviously I so. he has the military background, right? Charlie makes a really good point too. I mean, you saw back in the campaign where, uh, Trump said once about Reince Priebus, he knows better than to lecture me. We're not dealing with a five-star general here. Uh, I think John Kelly, you know, 
has that gravitas that Ryan Priebus doesn't have. I also think it was seen as a bit of a last-ditch effort to bring him in. You know, if he can't fix his place and he leaves in six months or three months and says, he won't listen, I, I can't handle this, I don't know if he would do that, that's a pretty devastating blow to the presidency. Uh, I think he respects John Kelly a lot more. You know, one thing we heard consistently, even before he was named chief of staff, is he thinks DHS was one of his best-run agencies. What he's done in terms of homeland security is record-shattering. You look at the border, you look at the tremendous results we've had, and you look at the spirit. We look forward to, uh, if it's possible, an even better job as chief of staff. He likes the border enforcement and, you know, all of uh, the different programs that John Kelly put in place there. So uh, I think if, if, if John Kelly can't fix it, then we have big problems for this administration going forward. One last point before we wrap up this segment. I want to bring it back to, to immigration where we started uh, here and where John Kelly started his tenure in this in this administration. So, uh, Josh, you, you said you think, you know, the prospects for this this legislation in the Senate, in Congress are are slim. But what, what should we expect going forward? Like what's the next step from the White House, from Cotton and Purdue as this thing goes forward? Are they going to be holding hearings and trying to – Amplify the issue. I was told to expect the White House and some of their conservative allies uh, to begin building public consensus for this. I think we're going to see the White House talking about how popular it is. I think the president at some of his rallies is expected to talk about, you know, how popular curbing immigration is. Uh, whether he sticks to the script at the rallies is, <laughs> you know, a quintessential question of our time. But uh, I do think you're going to see them build you know, something of the case. And I mean, I already saw this flowing into my inbox this morning. You have a lot of these conservative groups saying, you know, the Democrats are going to have a problem on immigration, you know, limiting immigration is popular in all of these different districts and areas. And I think it's it's something you're going to see the White House try to exploit uh, pretty, uh, pretty aggressively over the next few months. All right. We'll have to keep an eye on that going forward. Uh, let's let's shift from there into a state, into a particular state where immigration has been a huge issue. And that state is Arizona. And the uh, Republican senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake, is our particular topic for this segment. Our data point is 49%. That's the share of the vote that Flake won in 2012 when he was first elected to the Senate. He's up again in 2018. We we mentioned this data point basically to say it's like, you know, he, he won with less than the majority last time. This guy is potentially in, in a tough race. He needs all the support he can get. But... He has never been a fan of Donald Trump, and he has pretty much had enough at, at this moment, even in a moment when he needs the base. Here's an excerpt from his new book that was published in Politico earlier this week. To carry on in the spring of 2017 as if what was happening with the White House he's talking about was anything approaching normalcy required a determined suspension of critical faculties and tremendous powers of denial. And now Flake followed this up with a media tour. He's been on CNN. He's been on MSNBC over the past few days talking all about his many problems with Donald Trump, who he never endorsed in 2016. We never supported. We've kind of, as Republicans, taking up an unfamiliar banner that, uh, you know, this populism and, you know, in some cases, xenophobia, anti-immigration, uh, protectionism. That's not familiar to us, and I don't think that that is a governing philosophy. Charlie, this is a remarkable move from a senator up for re-election in a potential swing state with a far-right challenger on his flank and Democrats hungrily eyeing the state as they have for a number of years. Yeah, but what's really remarkable is that so few Republicans have been willing to do the same and, and break uh, with the White House given the turmoil to uh, to date. Uh, but, you know, I think that's really probably more of a measure of our hyper polarized uh, environment. Um, 
what's especially interesting, though, is that uh, the White House's approach, I think that's even more remarkable. When has a White House ever so explicitly taken on an incumbent from their own party, especially probably the most endangered incumbent within their party. When has that ever happened? You know, I can't really think of of uh, an instance, and it's really not about ideology. I mean, in the past, if there were, were differences, you know, politicians were experienced enough to understand that, you know what, I may not like this person personally, but uh, I need them as part of the coalition. Um, and they, and they re- recognize that you know, uh, we'll let bygones be bygones. But here, Trump hasn't. And a lot of it is rooted in the in the Access Hollywood scandal where he remembers everyone who uh, dropped him like a hot potato and wanted him out. And, Trump, and Flake was one of them. Yeah. I think Tim Alberta wrote a great story this weekend about uh, president kind of unmoored from the party and the traditional party discipline of, you know, no one really around him anymore who, who feels uh, – particular loyalty to the Republican Party. And I don't think Trump does. I mean, you saw his tweet this morning. Our relationship with Russia is at an all-time and very dangerous low. You can thank Congress, the same people who can't even give us health care. That's a pretty incendiary comment from a sitting president to make. Yeah, Uh, when your party controls it. Right. And you you talk to a lot of these folks on the West Wing and they make clear to you, we will distance ourselves from Congress happily if we need to. We would take on Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan if it it got to that point. Uh, there is no particular love or affinity for for Republican politics. I mean, Trump won as a Republican, but his whole career, if you watched him, he he gave to Democrats. He you know supported Democrats. He's expressed a litany of issue, different positions on various issues. There's no. There's no affinity. We don't have a president who's a traditional party leader. I think, and to that point, you know, among the the other things that that Jeff Flake wrote in in that excerpt of his book that was printed in Politico that he's been saying, he he criticized not by name, but he criticized Mitch McConnell for saying uh, during. Obama's first term that the Republican Party's top goal was to make Obama a one-term president. He didn't mention McConnell by name, but he he was criticizing that sentiment that everyone knows McConnell said. McConnell, however, pointedly declined to comment when uh, when Politico reporters asked his office about it uh, after the fact. And that's the difference, right? The White House asked about it, said they were like, I I think, what was it that uh, Sarah Sanders said at the briefing on Wednesday? He would do himself a favor to stop criticizing president and and do his job. So that's that's the difference, right? Between kind of the the party building and the attitude that that someone like Mitch McConnell Right. adopts in the goal of counting to 50 <laughs> over and over versus what someone like Trump who has no patience right. or interest in that does. But a lot of a Trump reaction too is visceral. You know, the TVs are always running in the West Wing. They see Jeff Flake go on TV and bash him. They go after him. You know, they see a congressman or a senator say something in a newspaper. They go after them. You talk to folks close to McConnell and they think, it's fundamentally crazy when they were going after, uh, you know, Dean Heller and the healthcare fight and putting the outside group millions of dollars of ads. Uh, but Connell and his team, what? You're going to go after a vulnerable senator who needs to be reelected for us to keep a majority in the middle of a healthcare fight and hit him in his own state? That's that's like the antithesis of what they kind of see as politics. To Trump, he said something critical about Trump. Here we go. 
One thing that hasn't been uh, looked at very closely here is Flake's own political calculus. And I feel like this is a really overlooked part of this story. And let's just stipulate it's taken uh, a good deal of political courage for him to break with his party. I mean, we don't see enough of that these days. You know, uh, members on both sides are locked into party orthodoxy. and Nobody will ever call out a member of their own party for any kind of uh, sin whatsoever. Having said that... um, what he's doing is not nearly as suicidal as it seems, because at first you, you might think, well, you know, Trump's got a lot of support among the GOP base, probably eight out of 10 voters in most states support him still. Uh, Flake is definitely getting a primary challenge from the right, uh, and it's going to be a really competitive one. But what people don't recognize is the is the uh, system that Arizona has, uh, and I think that Flake is working this. And uh, here I'm talking about Arizona is not a closed primary. Arizona is like a hybrid system where if you're an independent or an unaffiliated voter, you can vote in that primary. So what Flake, I think, is doing is not nearly as suicidal in the sense that if he can build a coalition of Republicans who still like him or don't like Trump and have get all these independents to vote for him in the primary, that is a winning coalition and that is enough to get him to victory. Uh, And I can envision a scenario where lots of Trump hating independents uh, would choose to vote in a Republican primary for the candidate who has bucked the president rather than vote in a boring Democratic primary. And so all of a sudden you can see a way that Jeff Flake uh, can get to victory in the primary despite uh, pissing off lots of conservatives and despite alienating the president. I guess the the flip side of that, though, is a lot of, especially in midterm years, politics is about intensity, right? And so at this point, despite the, the credit he's getting from some Democrats for taking this public stand against the president, there's not much love lost between Jeff Flake and the Democratic Party, right? He, Jeff Flake is a very conservative Republican. He just voted for a ton of health care legislation that Democrats hate. He's I, – I think he's voted to confirm almost all or all of pre- President Trump's cabinet. Um, and so there's the, that intensity on one side. And then the intensity in the Republican Party base right now is all around Trump. That's he's he's the rallying point. And then so if you there might be more people in the middle, but can you motivate them, I think, is the is the big question. Um, you know, will, will he be able to, to get people excited about that? Let's, let's remember how much passion there is on the left and even in the center. When you look at the, the Trump's numbers with independents and, and moderates, they're, they're not good. Right. Uh, you can easily see a, a scenario where there's lots of passion to vote even for somebody not of your party to get out there for flake just to vote against Trump because he is the most visible opponent of Trump right now in the Republican Party. That's a good point. Let's let's talk quickly uh, along the the lines of the the Democrats that, that we just mentioned. There's an interesting roster of potential Democratic candidates uh, shaping up here in Arizona. No one, none of them have actually jumped in uh, to the race. There is an activist who's in the race, but in terms of you know prominent elected officials, we haven't seen anyone jump in yet. But there's there's an interesting collection of them. There's a a blue dog Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Cinema. Uh, there's the mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton, who's uh, kind of term limited. Uh, out and is looking for for his next thing. And then there's a a state rep named Randy Fries, who was actually one of the uh, doctors who treated uh, Gabrielle Giffords uh, when she was shot in uh, in 2011. And so kind of this interesting uh, collection of potential candidates. I don't know how likely it is that any of them would end up running against each other versus the party kind of coalescing. Although, Charlie, as you know, cinema also has has some of her own problems with Democratic base with some of the votes that she's taken and affiliating as a blue dog and in Congress. But interesting collection of people there in in a state that Democrats have eyed for a very long time without 
breaking through. And it's revealing, I think, just about the transitional state of Arizona. You know, it was so conservative for, for many years. And now, the, you know, there's so much talk about it being a purple state or a state that's evolving into a much more competitive swing state. Uh, be, and, you know, clearly uh, that the the breadth of that field, the ideological breadth of that field gives you a flavor for that. You have the mayor of the biggest city. You've got cinema who, you know, as you mentioned, there are lots of Democrats in that state that see her as a little bit too calculating, always angling for the next office. Uh, I had uh, an Arizona Democrat uh, once uh, in, in describing her just point to his mouth like a gagging reflex like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, her, it, his point being he found her voting record so appalling given the nature of her district that he felt that was almost unforgivable that she would uh, depart from uh, from the party line so often. Which is remarkable because when she ran for Congress in 2012, she was in a crowded Democratic primary and and uh, and then in a tough general election and Republicans essentially attacked her as a communist uh, <laughs> on her state Does that still work? record. And now here we are. Josh, uh, Wrapping up here, what what should we expect from the White House? I mean, we talked a little bit about what their reaction has been so far. But if Flake keeps up, that certainly the publicity tour shows no signs right. of stopping. His book isn't actually even out yet. You know, once right. once it's out, there is going to be a lot more for people right. to chew on. And he's clearly this is clearly something he wants to be talking about a lot. And whether he actually does think there's political upside in terms of finding this middle path, or if he's just decided that it's not worth being a senator anymore if he doesn't get to say this stuff he's going to be saying it so what, what how how is this going to evolve i mean what what how do you see this progressing <laughs> i think you certainly could see the white house fighting back uh pretty hard i think we've already seen that a little bit you know through emissaries uh through uh, Steve Bannon's brother out in Arizona, through various donors. They're already talking about challengers putting money in the race. We affiliated outside groups, uh, you know, if they can ever get their act together and figure out how to do politics, I think they would go after him. You could see the president getting in a barbed exchange. Uh, someone in the West Wing joked to me, uh, I don't know how serious they were because it's really hard to know with anything these days, that, you know, they would campaign against him in Arizona if they needed wow. to. They would find the challenger and campaign against him. Now, I'm not saying that they will do that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it, people it, are thinking about it. People are thinking about it. Sure. I mean, they they really dislike this guy. And the more he does TV, uh, the more I think you'll see Trump really go after him. And it's not just Trump. Uh, you know, every time you walk through the West Wing, there's several big TVs in every office. They're on every network. I mean, they know what people are saying. Volume on. If if Jeff Flake is on TV constantly with his book, talking about Trump, hitting Trump, saying Trump's incompetent, unqualified, doesn't know what he's doing, it could be an inner party squabble like for the ages. I mean, it, it really would be fun to watch. It's a great point. It's, it's going to be uh, one of the best spectacles to watch next year because think about it this way. If he loses the primary, he has nothing less to lose, and he's just going to light up Trump for the rest of his time in Congress. <laughs> right. If he wins the primary, he's also going to be politically incentivized to take on Trump yes. because all of a sudden he's going to have a competitive general election against a Democrat, and he's going to need to win over uh, lots of independents. And uh, the thing about Arizona is that Arizona has an enormous population of unaffi uh, unaffiliated or independent voters, at least equal to the percentage of Republicans. Roughly a third of the state is unaffiliated or uh, independent. And you could see the president, you know, talking about immigration a lot in Arizona. I think in his mind, he affiliates Arizona with, with immigration. And, you know, the wall and with the sheriff, uh, I can't remember his name off the top Arpaio. of my head, but Arpaio, Joe Arpaio, the tough-talking sheriff. Uh, 
you know, you could see Trump really using Arizona as a cudgel to to have a broader message on immigration and and bash Flake pretty hard. Right, and he he and Flake are definitely not coming from the same place on right. on immigration. Well, that's going to be a fun one to watch. We're going to get to watch it for uh, over a year because Arizona <laughs> has late primaries, and then of course there's a general election after that. So. Uh, it should, should be a fun one to keep an eye on, especially if Flake does uh, stay out there. Josh, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Let's take a quick break to hear about one of Politico's other podcasts. All right. For our third and final segment this week, we are going to talk about Alabama, which has a Senate special election, special primary coming up in a few weeks. And here to talk about it, we have Daniel Strauss, uh, one of our political reporters who has been covering that very closely. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. All right. So our data point is $8 million. That is how much money Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's political network, and chiefly here we're talking about the super PAC that's aligned with him and run by his former chief of staff. $8 million is how much they are prepared to spend in the upcoming Alabama Senate special election, an election that Republicans are virtually assured to win because it's Alabama. The primary is coming up on August 15th to uh, fill the uh, to complete uh, the rest of Attorney General Jeff Sessions term since he left the Senate earlier this year. So, Daniel, why is so much money coming into a safe Republican state? I mean, on the surface, it really doesn't seem to make very much sense, right? Because there's going to be a Republican in this seat no matter what. But the personalities involved in this race is what makes the difference. And uh, you have Mitch McConnell is supporting uh, Senator Luther Strange, the incumbent there, who's found himself. Uh, as a favorite among Senate leadership. And uh, and he was appointed, right? right. When... He was appointed by uh, former Governor Robert Bentley. Uh, and he's really endeared himself to Mitch McConnell. So for McConnell, he sees uh, the value of winning the seat and winning a reliable Republican vote. But beyond that, also, $8 million sounds like a lot, but compared to other states, it's actually a regu- uh, relatively modest sum. So this is a way for Mitch McConnell to demonstrate that he's serious about incumbent protection and he's serious about uh, protecting his own within the Senate. Oh, that's a good point. So even as we were just talking about with Jeff Flake and the possible primary stuff, that this is sending a message. Yeah. Meanwhile, Charlie, the the other two the, – there's a very crowded Republican field here, but the two Republicans who have – uh, establish themselves as Strange's main rivals here are not what you would call Mitch McConnell Republicans. Yeah, and I think that explains why McConnell is uh, so engaged in this race. I mean, in his mind, in the mind of an establishment Republican uh, like Mitch McConnell, the alternatives to Strange are so much worse. It's not just that he wants uh, a reliable vote. He'll get a reliable uh, a senator who can cast a vote that he will like out of Alabama. But there's a big difference between Luther Strange and Roy Moore and Mo Brooks because Moore and Brooks are from the the sort of bomb throwing school of Republican politicians, they're both, you know, to a large degree, loose cannons and uh, independent operators. They are exactly the kind of politicians that have made Mitch McConnell's life a nightmare in recent years. You know, and they are the kind of politicians that have uh, helped fracture Republican unity. Uh, and the other factor here that's really interesting is the Trump factor. It's almost like this X factor that's hovering over this race because Trump is in in a lot of ways he's like the king of Alabama. I mean, who would have ever believed that a non church-going Manhattan billionaire who once characterized himself as very pro-choice would become so wildly popular in such a conservative state. But, you know, that is the case. Uh, and it's been the case since he did that big, uh, that huge rally in uh, Mobile early in the campaign. And so suddenly he casts a very big shadow over uh, Alabama politics. Yeah. 
I mean, look, the, the truth is uh, Trump has a lot to thank Alabama for. Uh, it's where he got his first Senate endorsement in Jeff Sessions, who's all like equally as popular as uh, uh, Trump there. And it really – it's the first state where – there was this – Trump likes to call attention to to getting huge crowds and we're talking sort of football field level huge crowds <laughs> which started in Alabama. But uh, you know, Charlie also brings up a really good point here about Brooks and Moore. Like on the surface, again, these are uh, Republican votes. But if you – the prospect, the possibility of someone like Mo Brooks going to the Senate and then giving Mitch McConnell a headache on a really contentious close vote like an Obamacare repeal vote is not really that far-fetched. Mo Brooks being a member of the House Freedom Caucus, which has kind of made its name saying voting voting no on legislation because it wasn't conservative enough as opposed to kind of the traditional horse trading in the middle. And then Roy Moore, I mean, a little background here. Roy Moore, former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, has been elected twice and removed twice from that office uh, for violating orders of, of the federal government, essentially. I mean, one to... Uh, remove a statue of the Ten Commandments that had been stall- installed on government property. And then and he made a comeback run um, and then was taken off again because he refused to enforce uh, the Supreme Court decision mandating that, that states permit same-sex marriage uh, within within their borders. And so he, he has a very, very strong following. But it's Brooks who has been the main target for Senate Leadership Fund, the uh, Senate Republican super PAC. And as Charlie said, they've been using Trump as the cudgel, right? Because Brooks was a longtime supporter during the 2016 presidential election of Ted Cruz. It's all sort of connected to each other. I hadn't thought about it that way. (laughs) But the the other interesting thing about uh, the Trump factor is that I'm dying to see what happens uh, to his appeal there. And I wonder if it's dissipating a little bit as he continues to abuse Jeff Sessions. I mean, he's dialed it back a little bit. But uh, let's not forget, Jeff Sessions was beloved by the Republican base in Alabama. Uh, and in fact, we had a pretty interesting story a couple of weeks ago where uh, one of our reporters called into Alabama to see what people thought of uh, Trump's very public criticism of Jeff Sessions. And people were really torn you could, uh, and emotional about this. Uh, many of them said at the same time, they're very supportive of, of Donald Trump. They felt that the media was giving him uh, an unfair shake and was, uh, and they believed you know, a lot of the Trump rhetoric about a witch hunt against him. But at the same time, they felt that he was being deeply unfair to a very decent person. And what was really striking about that story was of the people we talked to, and we talked to lots of county officials and, and local legislators and folks like that, more than a handful described Sessions as having the potential to be the greatest attorney general in U.S. history. Literally. Well, uh, and, and so it gives you a sense he's of revered. Who, how— who, who compiles those rankings? <laughs> the, the greatest? I think that's Sports Illustrated. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe the AP has a result. <laughs> like that. Yeah. No, but Mo Brooks tried to leverage this, right? So he sent out this proposal saying if uh, Jeff Sessions is ousted by the Trump administration from his position, we should all drop out and allow Jeff Sessions to return to his former Senate seat. This is a, this is a move by a candidate who's behind in the polls, right? right? We should this say is, like, this is a desperate— this is not to, a move by someone who's going to comfortably win this race. This, Brooks is getting outspent. He's getting out advertised. He more starts with a lot more name recognition among the challengers, right? right? And Strange has this big money machine behind him. So it's one of several desperate moves that we've seen from Brooks recently that that feed into this, right? Tell, right. tell us a little more so, about that. So look, for a time, uh, uh, Luther Strange's poll numbers weren't moving publicly or privately. Uh, but Luther Strange and his allies started this aggressive campaign attacking Brooks 
folks as not a Trump supporter, not really hitting on the Jeff Sessions point, but really contrasting him as like not supportive of where a lot of Alabamians are. And uh, so Brooks had to respond in some way. And after a little while of this sort of like onslaught, he did a few things. Number one, he released an ad highlighting his actions during this shooting at uh, a Republican congressional baseball team practice. The one that wounded Steve right. Scalise, the House the Majority Whip. Right. Let's just change your views on, on the gun situation in America. The Second Amendment uh, right to bear arms is to help ensure that we always have a republic. So no, I'm not changing my position on any of the rights that we enjoy uh, as Americans. That uh, shooting ad backfired in a way because you're, you're, I, you, I really shouldn't have chosen who, that verb. I'm who, sorry. Who could have who could have thought? Who could have thought that you guys are my two? You guys have edited me a lot. You know, Scott currently, Charlie in the past, and I'm pretty sure if this is in copy, you would have cut that who, out. Who could have thought that politicizing a mass shooting uh, would would somehow backfire in a Republican? And it did it pretty Republican. spectacularly. Uh, Scalise's chief of staff responded pretty uh, directly on Twitter to that. And it, it, when you look back now at the coverage, it looks especially distasteful because I think for most of our listeners, the, the coverage you, you would have seen from the early hours of the shooting when there was a lot of chaos and uncertainty about the details, the voice you would have heard on CNN was Mo Brooks. He was the congressman who right out of the gate was in front of all the cameras. And at the time, it didn't it, – it seemed – uh, normal and understandable, given given the trauma of the incident, people were desperate for for details, and he was very matter of fact about it. But now, looking back, now that he's used it in campaign ads, it begins to look a little bit more calculating and uh, carries uh, a much more unpleasant whiff. Now that it, it turns out he's used it pretty aggressively. Yeah, Alabamians I talked to started to point out, sort of like forty eight or seventy two hours after the coverage, they started to say to me. Look, uh, Brooks is on TV and talking about this stuff a lot. He's not turning down any interviews. Uh, I wonder if he's going to leverage this down the line or if he's going to try and tie this into the Alabama Senate race. And in the end, it seems like that's what happened. But interestingly, uh, you know, Senator Strange's campaign hasn't really directly criticized him for that. He's let them sort of bowl over here. And what's been impressive about uh, Strange's campaign is that he didn't come into this race as a super popular figure. There's a lo- there's a long history and a lot of criticism about Strange and how, as Attorney General, he was starting to look at Governor Bentley and sort of corruption and sort of abuse of his office. And then when the option came up, his critics say to take the Senate seat, he what a maybe stepped off the gas yeah, a little he bit, slowed down the investigation a little bit. Interesting. Interesting. Um, <laughs> And But now the needle is sort of ticking into Strange's favor. His poll numbers are up. Uh, he's uh, winning the money game. He's got a lot of support from Senator Richard Shelby who has a lot of poll in the state among Alabama donors. And these other campaigns are starting to really struggle very visibly here. So the, this primary is coming up on August 15th. Uh, the way Alabama runs their elections is that if no one gets to 50 percent in the primary, uh, which seems likely, although it's not not set in stone, but it seems likely because the field is so crowded, uh, there will be a runoff between the top two uh, primary runoff for the Republican nomination in September. And then with the general election, which a lot of people assume is more or less a formality, Alabama being what it is, 
later this year. Right. I mean, look, I am a little surprised with how much of a formality it's shaping up to be. Democrats in D.C. were really excited about Doug Jones, a former um, U.S. attorney uh, who uh, has this sort of uh, proud civil rights history and they were hoping that they could sort of capitalize on the infighting here. But he's actually polling below uh, an also-ran candidate. Who happens to be named Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy. That's, that's, a, yeah, but, that's a tough play. Yeah, but no, you've, unrelated. You violated a cardinal sin. You, you've got to learn that you never listen to anything D.C. Democrats say about the South. Anything. You take a look at the map below the Mason-Dixon line. When they talk about a race in the South, you ignore it. I mean, when they're telling you that they're going to be, you know, players in Alabama and, you know, Mississippi and places like that. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know. They did this, but they did this in Mississippi too. I covered that race in 14 very closely. They had Travis Childers, this former U.S. representative uh, from Mississippi who they were hoping would capitalize on the chaos here and he imploded in the same way. He just disappeared. Yeah. So, all right. So we got that primary coming up. Remember, August 15th. Uh, that's that's our next big special election that we're keeping track of. Daniel, thank you very much for coming in to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Charlie, thank you as always. Nice to see you again, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. And please also subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, Rachel Cusick, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.